This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Hello, I'm Alec Hogg, and welcome to episode 64 of Inside COVID-19. In this episode, mental health is in focus as the pandemic sends societal stresses surging, and we'll have some tips on how to know when you need an assessment. Sometimes Chief Executive unpacks the company's billion rand relief package for lockdown-affected clients. We'll get insights into why homebound workers have turned into day traders. It now accounts for a stunning 20% of U.S. stock market activity. And also from America, companies are now insisting on testing before allowing workers back into the building. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. In today's COVID-19 headlines, South Africa remains solidly in the global top five, although active cases have stabilized at around 170,000 for the past week, with new coronavirus infections offset by recoveries. A record of just under 14,000 new cases were registered on Friday, but after last Wednesday's peak of 572 deaths, since then, lower daily mortalities have been coming through, with 114 reported on Sunday. Globally, a total of 16.5 million people are now recorded as having been infected, with just over 10 million of those recovered, 5.7 million cases still active, and 654,000 deaths. That's just on 4% of the recorded infections. Mortalities in the United States passed 150,000 on Monday, almost double those of Brazil at 87,000, which is more than twice the third most affected nation, India, at 33,500. As it's Sunday night, the South African death toll was 6,769. Hong Kong, Japan and Australia, which had appeared to have the coronavirus under control after early and decisive action, are now all reporting record infections. While the number of infections in the three places are still small relative to the hardest hit nations, the surge is showing just how tough it is to stamp out COVID-19. Australia, for instance, had just two infections on June the 9th, It recorded a new record of 532 yesterday. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson is urging his compatriots to go on diet to protect themselves against COVID-19. Johnson, who needed a couple of nights in ICU before himself overcoming the virus, today released a video launching the UK's obesity strategy, admitting that the scare has given him a new approach to his health. I've always wanted to lose weight for ages and ages, and I, like I think many people, I struggle with my weight, go up and, and down, but since I, I recovered from coronavirus, I've been steadily building up my fitness. 
I, I don't want to make any any uh, excessive claims because I've only really just started concentrating on. But I've got I, I'm at least a stone down. I'm more than a stone down. But when I went into ICU, uh, when I was really ill, I was I was I was very I was way overweight. For I'm only about five foot ten, uh, you know, at, at, at the outside, and um, you know I was too fat. I start the day by going for a, a, a run with the, with the dog and. Uh, quite a gentle run but actually getting faster and faster now as I, as I get as I get fitter and the great thing about going for a run at the beginning of the day is that nothing could be worse for the rest of the day once if you really go in hard if you really take some exercise at the beginning the rest of the day will be a breeze inside covid-19 from biz news Dr. Saran Motilal is with us. She's a clinical wellness specialist at Vitality. We've had a chat before, Saran, about mental health. And maybe just in the wake of that, we got quite a lot of interesting feedback. And I'm wondering whether mental health is now starting to enter the mainstream, given the challenges that we're seeing in COVID-19. Yeah, definitely. I think that Initially, especially the first waves of the pandemic, we were seeing a lot of the physical sides. Symptoms were a focus. Prognosis was a focus. Treatment, diagnosis. And those things are still very important. But I think what we're encountering a lot more now is anxiety, stigma, dealing with grief, loss and depression. And unfortunately, all of these factors are sort of coming together at the same point. And I think mental health at the moment is very topical. A lot of people are talking about it or experiencing some mental health fallout, whether themselves or friends or family. I think it's just a crucial point to have support available to more people. It's extraordinary if you think of the numbers of people who are going to lose their jobs or already have. The research tells us 3 million people in a country of South Africa's size with high unemployment already. It's going to put a lot of people under additional pressure from a mental health perspective as well. Yeah, it's uh, devastating. And I think talking about this topic, early on, there's one thing that I'd like to maybe say as a disclaimer. Job loss has a lot of financial fallout, has a lot of external factors that are associated to it. And I guess I'm going to talk a little bit more about the mental health aspects of that. But that's not to diminish that those financial burdens and you know obligations that sit on us are still there, still very real and very, still very present. I think in facing job losses, and as you mentioned, we're already a country that had high unemployment rates, and, and now to see this sort of double whammy of the covert effect is really is devastating. And I think that's linked beyond just losing your job. Your job can offer structure, a social outlet. It can maybe add a little bit to purpose and meaning of life. And losing those aspects can have quite a hard effect on people. People might start questioning their identities. You've experienced a bit of grief or loss. There's heightened levels of anxiety, thinking about what the future might hold. All of this, again, comes together and can create quite a difficult situation to go through, even in the mental health side of things. I think the one thing that I'd really like to stress, though, is that this trigger and, and job losses and this economic stress can really compound us to start to have physical and mental health symptoms, whether those are linked to anxiety or depression or stress. It's really important to be cognizant and aware of them, to seek extra help when needed. And if your sleep is being affected, if your mood is being affected, if your social connections are being affected, talk about it. Reach out to people around you. Reach out to support structures. 
if you're feeling helpless or hopeless, if you have this constant sort of low mood or high worry levels, high anxiety levels, can't seem to be still or you're constantly thinking of different things. All of these little elements add up and they're really important to be aware of and to be cognizant of and then to speak to people, get help, whether that's a family member who can speak to a medical professional or whether it's your GP or a psychologist or a psychiatrist. I just think that the most important thing is if you're starting to not feel yourself, if you're starting to feel like you can't really shake it, if you're starting to notice a change in behavior that's significant, you know, with friends or family members, that's really the early warning signs, let's call it that. And that's, you know, where I would highly recommend getting extra help, seeking medical advice. I think it can be really, really beneficial. So if you're snappy, if you're grumpy, if you're not feeling centered and balanced. It's not your fault always. We're going through an incredibly stressful time at the moment. If you're a Discovery or Vitality member, hop on the site and go and do the assessment and that'll probably get you going in the right direction. Definitely, Alec. And just to encourage people to come out, talk about it, get that help because really it exists and it can help you get through a difficult period if you're experiencing it. Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. Lizette Lamprecht is the chief executive of Suntime, a position she's held for the last, well, almost five years. But I guess, Ms. Lamprecht, you've never seen a challenge quite like the one that you're going through at the moment. Alec, absolutely right. I must say, and I've been working for much longer than that, and this is probably the most challenging but interesting time that I've ever experienced. And as an actuary, these kind of numbers that we're seeing every day from COVID-19 on the one hand, and we're going to get into it in a moment, the issues that your clients are facing must give you some very interesting insights. Yes, I must confess here that I'm a non-practicing actuary, so I'm not so much into the numbers anymore, but it is interesting times for all of us. You've come under an enormous amount of pressure recently, Suntam, being the market leader in South Africa, having business interruption insurance, and many of your policies being pretty specifically worded around the pandemic, and yet you decided not to pay it out. Now, there are two theories. I'm going to start with the first, if you don't mind, and that is that the insurance industry in South Africa cannot afford to pay all of the claims that they could potentially face you want me to respond to that, I obviously cannot speak on behalf of other companies, but that is really not the reason why we have not been paying claims. The reason is simply that we interpret the policy wording as not responding to most of the claims that we have. You will know that there are many cases internationally. We're by no means unique, and Suntam and the other insurance companies in South Africa is no different from other companies in the world. So we're not different. So that's why we haven't been paying claims. Could you afford to meet with Alec, I mean, that's a question that I can't really answer because we don't really know exactly how many claims we will have. We don't know how long this business interruption will last. The indemnity periods are all different for different types of policies. But I can say, and we're in a closed period, so I really cannot say much about numbers, but Suntam has always been well capitalized. And you do have a big parent in Suntam, I guess, to support you. It is always good to have a big parent, but as I said, Santam, remember, we have other shareholders as well in Santam, and on its own, Santam is well capitalized. Now, the announcement that you made over the weekend seemed to many to be a reversal of the previous position, which was, we're not going to pay until the courts tell us to. What initiated this change in approach? 
let me just be clear, it's definitely not a change in approach because we are not paying claims. So be very clear, and we've been talking about this for a while. We've seen the developments, we've seen how our clients are suffering, and maybe naively we thought that this whole lockdown and the impact on our clients will not last so long. And we maybe also naively thought that we would get legal certainty earlier, but seeing that this is going to take much longer. We understand that our clients are battling now and we made a decision as a company that we want to help our clients with financial relief. So we're not paying claims. We're seeing that they're battling and we want to help those clients that are really impacted with a bias towards small clients that don't have a lot of other recourse to help them with some sort of financial relief in the meantime. Why are you going to court? Is there not an easier way perhaps through arbitration? The problem with arbitration is that it's only legally binding on the parties in arbitration. So court is really the only process where you can get final legal clarity that will also pull through to all the other players, including our reinsurers in our insurance chain. How long is it going to take to get the court's final decision? I really don't know. I cannot tell you that. What I can tell you is that we have been in very constructive discussions with both our regulators to see if there's anything we can do. I mean, this is not only Santam, a couple of other companies as well, but is there anything that we can do to get the process to get there quicker? Also know that there are many other cases on exactly the same principles, legal cases and court cases happening elsewhere in the world, and we will also obviously as South Africa take guidance from that. Different wordings on the various Santam policies, the court case going on with My Africa. I think that's the one that we're going to hear in September. Is that going to be a precedent for all of them as far as you're concerned? It will not be for all policy wordings and it will not be for all cases because there are also different outcomes depending on where the company is located, when there were COVID cases. It's really not a simple matter, but I do think it will give us clarity on a large number of our cases. And the engagement from the Financial Sector Conduct Authority, we do understand that the industry has been talking with them, with the FSCA, and also that the FSCA has been imploring you to pay these claims. Have you made much progress with them? I think where we are now is really progress in terms of that there is agreement between us and the FSCA now, and you can see that in the press release that they put out on Friday, that there is a need for legal clarity from all parties in South Africa, our policyholders, our insurers, reinsurers, and the regulators. And that, for me, is progress. I mean, we've had, as sometimes, no instruction to pay claims from anyone. What we are doing now is really a voluntary contribution to our clients that we know are really suffering badly out there. How did you decide to come to that figure of 25,000 Rand minimum and a maximum of one and a half million for individual policyholders? You, Alan, I suppose we got the actuaries cracking on that. Maybe not look so much at the minimum and the maximum, but look at what we are doing is we're taking the monthly sum insured of the clients that we feel qualify and we're looking at two months sum insured and we will be paying them more or less 70% of that. And the reason why two months, because those were the two months that we really had a very hard lockdown and many of those clients really could not trade at all. And the 70% of the sum insured is to allow at a very general level for variable expenses that they, savings that they could have had. So that is really the formula. The 25,000, I mean, we don't want to pay less than that, but it will actually be very few clients that will be impacted by that because that means they must actually have a very low sum insured and therefore obviously paid a very low premium. 
the one and a half million maximum is just because we really want to make sure that there's enough money to help the smaller clients. We don't want to pay huge amounts of the money that we have available to big companies. We think that they have other recourses also to financing. Inside COVID-19 from Business. Retail investors in the United States have become a powerful force with a boom in day trading accompanying the COVID-19 pandemic, which requires us to self-isolate and many to work from home. A tripling in the Tesla share price, for instance, has been ascribed directly to the day trading phenomenon, and it now accounts for 20% of all American stock trades. Here's the inside story from our partners at the Wall Street Journal, Charlie Turner and Michael Wursthorn. The pandemic lockdowns have left many Americans stuck at home with nothing to do. So millions of them are sitting in front of their computers or pulling out their phones and trading stocks. It's called day trading, and it hasn't been this popular in a long time. Our markets reporter Mike Wursthorn is here to tell us all about it. First, Mike, tell us exactly what day trading is. Day trading is a more aggressive form of investing where where those people are trading in and out of stocks on a daily basis. They're not holding anything long term and flies in the face of sort of the principles that though that Warren Buffett, Jack Bogle and other investing titans have encouraged investors to do over the years just for the simple fact that um Longer-term investing tends to show better returns versus um, investing in and out of stocks on a more frequent basis. You know, all that said, um, investors are keenly fixated, though, on sort of the, the, the quick money grab that they might be able to take advantage of with the market conditions right now. And how popular is day trading now? So there's a few different ways to look at this, but one of the way there's a really interesting data point that Citadel Securities, it's a market maker and it handles about 40% of all market orders on a day-to-day basis, but they're seeing that um, this year so far, retail investors, so that would include day traders and just any other individuals that are trading right now, they're taking up about 20% of overall market activity um, throughout 2020 this year. That compares to 15% at the end of um, December 2019 and uh, and the historical average of around 10%. Now on some of the really busy days that the market has seen so far, such as in March and there's been a number of busy days in April, May and June, that activity amongst retail investors can actually reach 25%. And that, those are numbers that Citadel told me they've never seen before. So why has day trading become so popular right now? What's the appeal? So the sort of the foundation for this has been laid over the last several years. The, the, the most crucial thing that several people have pointed to, including the investors that are doing this themselves, is that trading is free for the most part now. You can buy and sell a stock and not pay a commission um, at places like Charles Schwab, E-Trade, TD Ameritrade, and of course, um, some of the newer apps that actually started this, Robinhood in this instance. Um, so that alone, the fact that there is the cost of entry into this is, is zero, that you can just buy and sell a stock and whatever you gain, you gain and whatever you lose, you lose. You don't have to worry about any of the fees. That's been one of the biggest draws. The second really, the second motivating factor is, is that trading is easier than ever now. You could do it on your phone, um, you know, just in the same way that in the 90s, the advent of the internet and the personal computer gave way to the day traders then. Mobile phones and the fact that you can just download an app and trade at the click of a button has opened up trading to anybody that just has a smartphone in their hands. The third point I would say is that you're seeing a lot of people trying to take advantage of the volatility. We had this historic end to the longest bull market ever. It happened in very dramatic fashion in the sense that that the, the drop 
into bear market territory for the S&P 500 was the fastest on record. Um, and the bounce back has just has been just as extraordinary with the S&P 500 rising more than 40 percent. So for a lot of investors, um, that's that's seen as, as a really opportunistic time to get into the market. And they have made some good money, but at least the ones that I've spoken with during this story. All right. So how do people actually go about getting involved in day trading? So. To re- to be say a real day trader, you have to have at least twenty five thousand dollars in your account. A lot of brokerages have have basically a rule: if you have less than twenty five thousand dollars in your account, you can't execute more than I believe it's three trades on on a certain day. So to to, to avoid that issue and to be able to trade as much as you want, you know, regardless of the commission scenario, um, you need to have that twenty five thousand. That's really the only requirement. Um, you know, beyond that, it's just about doing your own research. And a lot of the day traders I spoke with, they're relying on social media. They're relying on 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 on, um, on message boards like Reddit and uh, and some of these other ones that are out there. They're relying on chat services like Discord to talk about these trades. So you know, it, it's all these 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 internet enabled tools, but they've all been updated over the last twenty years. That you know, just really making day trader accessible day trading accessible to anybody that has the money to do it. So people can day trade through established platforms like E-Trade. There's one trading app that's especially popular called Robinhood. Tell us about it. Robinhood has been, um, a lot of people are pointing to Robinhood as being um, sort of the real catalyst for a lot of this happening. Robinhood, when it came on the scene in 2012, they introduced a platform that didn't charge commissions. They made it possible for anybody who was willing, who was 18 or older and could open an account that they can trade, they can buy and sell stocks all at the click of a button. Um, and Robinhood, you know, did, did something also very novel in the sense that anybody who joined got a free stock. So, you know, Robinhood has seen a, an explosion in growth. I mean, they're at 13 million users since their founding and they gained just 3 million of those in the first, in the first three months of this year. Um, and it's a real testament to the fact that Robinhood has made an app that, you know, for a lot of people, they describe as really easy to use, slick, informative, and, um, and, and, and better than what some of the competition has put out there so far. Okay, so put all this in perspective for us, Mike. How big a factor is day trading in the overall financial markets? Does it have any real impact? So that, that, that's been an open debate amongst financial investors, amongst the, the financial industry right now. Um, you know, as I said earlier, retail investors are taking up about a fifth and as much as a quarter of all market activity on a day-to-day basis. Um, but the debate's really happening around what is the overall impact that these investors are having. You're seeing on the margins, say, some impact across the broader market. But for the most part, they, people believe that institutional money is still driving the S&P 500. But that's not to say we're seeing big swings in individual stocks just based on retail participation. Um, you know, companies like Hertz, Nikola, um, you know, Tesla, too, for instance. I mean, a lot of those huge gains that they've seen over the last um, several months of this year have really been at the hands of retail investors. So, you know, while you know, the jury's still out on whether or not they're driving the overall market action beyond just sort of the periphery that, that we've periphery gains that peripheral gains that we've seen over these last several months. It's really clear that they're, um, you know, driving big, volatile price swings in individual stocks right now. And that's something that's going to likely continue for as long as this environment persists. Can you talk about the risks of day trading? Give us an idea of how much money can be won or lost. 
Well, so that that gets us into when people do some more sophisticated um, trading strategies. So when you buy and sell stock, you know, say you buy a stock for thirty dollars, you know, the, the chances of that stock going to zero pretty fast is is, um, is 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 very small. I mean, that stock can lose a little bit of money, but but you're still going to have some money of what you originally invested. Where we've seen some of these traders get into a lot of troubles when they're investing in some highly risky stocks, like Hertz, for example. Um, that that was a company that was going through a bankruptcy process, and you saw the stock going up. In some instances, double-digit percentage points only to fall back down again. And, uh, you know, a lot of these bankruptcy situations, those stocks get rendered down to zero. So that, that's been a big risk for investors as they look at these opportunities to try to get some, some, the potential for big gains. Um, but where we've seen even more issues is with options trading. Now, you know, Robinhood has also been sort of, um, um, a forerunner in the sense that they made options a lot more accessible to average investors than ever before. Um, so the more, Simple options trading strategies where you're just buying, you know, a contract in some cases, uh, you know, in, in terms of putting a call on a company. Um, that's relatively safe where people do more sophisticated strategies like these multi-leg spreads where you can lose more than you put in. Um, that's where we've seen, you know, in, in at least one case, a very tragic circumstance arise where um, a trader thought he was down, you know, three quarters of a million dollars because he didn't really understand how the options trade worked. And because of that, he ended up taking his own life. That's an extreme example, but there's been a number of instances where people didn't understand the options trades they were making and ended up suffering substantial losses because of that. Um, and in a market like this with how fast things are moving, um, you know, they're seeing that also in some individual stock prices, too. How long can we expect day trading's popularity to last, given the current environment of people feeling isolated and the volatility in the markets? The Citadel Securities executive, I think, explained this really well. He thinks that you're going to see some of this persist, but likely not all of this new activity persist. So, the the bump to to 15% at the end of 2019 in terms of retail trading activity that followed Schwab and other brokerages cutting their commissions down to zero so you know Citadel and, and other industry, brokerage industry experts believe that you'll continue to see a more an elevated level than the historical average of 10% just because commissions do no, do not exist anymore um but whether or not it remains at 20 or 25% of those busiest days will likely rest on the fact that you know however long this volatility persists however long we're in this uncertain economic environment where people feel they can trade on these opportunistic price swings in individual stocks. So that could be for the next several months or, or even longer, um, depending on how that outlook persists. But, but for the most part, I think most people believe that you're going to see a higher level of retail participation than you have seen over the last several years. Inside COVID-19 from Business. What happens in the United States tends to find its way to us sooner or later. And right now, American companies are starting to test employees before allowing them to return to work post-COVID-19. Here's Mark Stewart from the Wall Street Journal. If and when you go back to your office, you'll likely be in a less crowded environment. And depending on where you work and what you do, your boss may require COVID-19 testing. Sarah Krauss has been extensively covering testing issues for the Wall Street Journal. She joins us now. Sarah, good to see you. Thanks for having me. Let's first talk about exactly who is getting tested, because at the top of mind, it seems like it would be doctors, nurses, anyone who kind of works on the front lines. Is this list expanding? 
That list is expanding. I think we'll see even more of it as schools and universities reopen. But for now, uh, there are a lot of companies that are trying to test workers as they try to reopen workspaces, whether that's manufacturing floors or offices or even movie sets. Let's talk about the movie sets. That's intriguing to me. Is this just because there are so many people involved in this operation? I guess it's no different than a corporation. That's right. I mean, in any of these spaces, you're trying to make sure that you're not creating a situation where you could have an outbreak where one person who maybe doesn't have symptoms comes to work, interacts with a lot of people and ends up infecting lots of folks before you are aware of that. Um, and so for the movie set specifically, one of the companies that I spoke to for my most recent story was Pinewood Atlanta Studios. Their CEO decided that they had to diligently screen anyone who was coming on their lot. And they have like a 700 acre lot where you have anyone from actors to directors to production assistants to crane operators and stunt doubles. So you have all sorts of roles operating in the same um, area, sometimes in close quarters when it comes to individual shots or preparing areas for shoots. So he sort of steeped himself in research on the testing that would make the most sense and has implemented a pretty rigid protocol where everyone of the thousands of people that that typically come to that facility to shoot are tested at least once a week, sometimes three or more times a week. Regardless where you work, I think people will probably appreciate the fact that companies are taking employee health seriously. But I also am wondering about issues of health privacy and if this is something that companies can officially do. It is something that companies can do, and in some ways it's akin to taking a a urine sample to screen for drug use before a role. It is an emerging and and quickly changing area. This isn't something that companies have done before, um, but this is also happening in the context of a public health emergency. So it is true that many companies are sort of making this up as they go and trying to figure out what works and what doesn't. And one of the companies that I talked to for my most recent story, you know, sort of said they thought about what is the worker experience in terms of getting tested this regularly. That company, uh, Siemens Health and Ears, uh, is testing both for active infections with diagnostic tests as well as for antibodies, and antibody tests require a blood draw. So as, you know, one of their executives said, they, they don't want their people to feel like guinea pigs. So what is the amount of testing or frequency of testing that gives the company comfort without overstepping employee comfort? Sarah, during our last conversation, we were discussing the fact that the turnaround times for these tests is not necessarily quick. Is it even worth it? What some of these companies are doing is making sure that they have agreements from labs or work with companies that have a network of labs that guarantee a fast turnaround time. So, you know, Pinewood Atlanta, the movie production company that I talked to for this story, went with a testing company called BioIQ that relies on a network of labs. And the idea was they didn't want to be subject to delays if any one lab ran out of swabs or any one lab was overwhelmed with demands. What companies are trying to make sure they have access to is a guaranteed fast turnaround time of no more than three days. The whole idea being, if it takes much longer than that, it really delays the contact tracing process. And you could have someone coming to work or waiting at home on a result you know, that's without being able to take action one way or another. So you're losing productivity or you're bringing them back to the workplace and they're potentially infecting others. This has been episode 64 of Inside COVID-19. 
The full interviews of the highlights that are featured here are available separately on the biznews.com website or on our app. Thanks for being with us. I'm Alec Hogg. Until tomorrow, cheerio. This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery.